America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout-out to the Reform members of Back to Ashes. Lisa Radford, Ashley Miles, Interscare Wifey, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Gwen Haley, Mana Ash, Normie D.W., Chrissy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, Patty's Niece, and Samantha Place. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes or would like to buy me a coffee as an extra thank you, all of that information can be found in the description below. Quick announcement. I have fallen off of this, but I'm getting ready to start it back up with acknowledgments of your birthday. September is coming up, so if you have a September birthday, please leave it in the comment section of this video so that you will be acknowledged in the beginning during the rolling credits. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 11. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first case and ad will play. After that, there will be no more ads within this video. On June 14, 1985, 38-year-old Sandra Phillips was murdered in the sex shop she managed. Her murder remains unsolved. Who killed Sandra? On June 14, 1985, 38-year-old sex shop manager and mother of four, Sandra Phillips was in her shop, the private shop, Swansea, Wales. Someone entered the shop that day and murdered her in a brutal fashion. She was sexually assaulted and battered with a heavy phone and strangled to death. Petrol was put around the shop and on her body. The shop nor Sandra were set alight. Anthony Williams, an area manager, found her body. The telephone used in the attack has never been found along with a set of keys belonging to Sandra. Later, brothers Wayne and Paul Darville from Neat were arrested for Sandra's murder. Wayne says he witnessed Paul murder Sandra. In 1986, Wayne retracted his statement, saying that he was pressured into confessing to the murder. Paul received life imprisonment with a minimum of 20 years. Wayne was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 15 years. In 1989, Wayne was revealed to be a serial confessor. He often confessed to things that he had never done. In 1992, the cases sent to a court of appeal where police are accused of falsifying notes and planting evidence. A bloody palm print found on a phone board near the crime scene was thought to have had negative results, but was destroyed. Wayne and Paul were released from prison and received 80,000 pounds in compensation. In 2005, the shop where Sandra was murdered was pulled apart and a false wall was found. The false wall was searched for evidence. However, no evidence was found. 
Sadly, in 2009, the investigation came to a formal end due to exhausted inquiries. Scottish serial killer Robert Black was a suspect for a short while, but that was dropped and Sandra's murder still remains unsolved. Julianne Marie Williams and Laura Lolly Winans, Shindoah National Park, 1996. The murders of Julianne Marie Williams and Laura Lolly Winans 20 years ago when Shindoah National Park remain unsolved today. Though at one point, federal officials thought they had their man. Williams and Winan, 20-something New Englanders, arrived at the park on May 19th with plans to stay through Memorial Day weekend. They were noticed missing after failing to show up for work on May 28th and June 1st. The two were found at their scheduled campsite, which faced the eastern face of Stony Man Mountain, with duct tape binding their wrists and covering their mouths. Both women were nude with their throats cut. Neither had evidently been sexually assaulted, and the only items that seemed to be missing were Williams's personal belongings, including a journal and her friend's driver's license. The case generated a huge amount of publicity and tips from the public, but no leads. A year later, Daryl David Rice was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 11 years in federal prison for stalking and assaulting a woman bicycling on Skyline Drive. Federal officials identified him on cameras entering and leaving Shenandoah National Park around the time Williams and Winans were murdered. On the testimony of a fellow inmate who played in a prison band with Rice and said he'd spoken of killing a woman in the park, Rice was indicted in 2002. Federal prosecutors dropped all charges two years later, however, based on holes in their case. One potential witness, for example, said he and his wife had been camping in the park around the time of the killings. He noticed a creepy man staring at him across a clearing and later chose a photo of Rice out of a lineup, but said he was only 65-70% to 70% sure of the identification. The camper's wife said she'd heard screams the night before. She also said she had then astrally projected out of her body to explore the crime scene. The biggest blow was DNA testing from a male hair found on the duct tape used to bind the women. It did not match Rice. Still, U.S. Attorney Thomas Boudrant said he still considered Rice a suspect. This summer, the FBI renewed calls for assistance in solving the murders of Williams and Winans. Rice was released from prison in 2007, then did two more stints for parole violations. In 2014, police in Durango, Colorado asked for calm after reports that Rice had been spotted in the area sparked a flurry of social media activity and calls to area law enforcement agencies. Police Chief Jim Spratlin told the Durango Herald, We have to just realize that he has the freedom to walk about the area. He has the freedom to get a job here, have a house, and everything else. All I know is he's not wanted, and he ain't looking for him, end quote. Meanwhile, back in Virginia, the deaths of Williams and Winans are considered an ongoing active investigation, according to D. Rubisky, 
public affairs and outreach specialist for the FBI's Richmond Division. Indeed, in early June, the FBI marked the 20th anniversary by issuing a renewed call for tips about the killings. Anyone with information about Williams and Wyman's death should contact the FBI's Richmond office at 804-261-1044 or go to tips.fbi.gov. Davies County, John Doe Davies County John Doe was a man found murdered in Owensboro, Kentucky in 1990. The victim's body was discovered in a wooded area by two rabbit hunters who called the police. The victim had been sexually assaulted and shot six times with a 22 caliber long rifle in the arm, chest, and head, resulting in his death. Prior to being shot, the victim was also beaten with a blunt instrument about the face and chest to the point of being facially unrecognizable. His facial features are described as having been obliterated, with several teeth knocked out. The brutality of the crime suggested that it was premeditated and that the abuse and murder of the victim took place over a long period of time. At the time of discovery, his body lacked hands and feet, and several of his teeth were missing, complicating the identification process. A retouched post-mortem photo of the victim shows significant damage to the entire middle portion of the face, including the mouth and the nose, and his killer may have also blackened one of his eyes. The body was not decomposed, suggesting the murder had taken place a matter of days prior. Based on the fact that his arms were tan compared to the rest of his body, the victim was hypothesized to be from outside Owensboro but it is believed that his killer was probably a local. Semen was found on or in the victim's body, but attempts to use this evidence, if any, appeared to have not yielded any viable leads. During the initial investigation, it was believed the victim was killed as a part of a satanic ritual sacrifice. A witness living down the road from the wooded patch at the time said he saw a white and green Ford pickup truck likely an early 1970s model, driving in the area on the evening before the body was found. Police were investigating the possibility that a possible serial killer named James Cable and his accomplice, Philip Clopton, were responsible for this victim's death after reporter Stephanie Sylvie discovered a possible connection in 2004. Cable was active in Kentucky during the 1980s, and like this man, Several of Cable's presumed victims had been sexually assaulted and dismembered, and some had been beaten to death. One of his victims was killed in Owensboro. It's worth noting that all of Cable's confirmed victims were female. In April of 1990, shortly after this victim's discovery, Cable and Clopton kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and tortured a 15-year-old girl from Jefferson County. However, the girl managed to break free and killed Clopton in self-defense. Cable was shortly captured after. Cable died in prison on December 3, 2013 and never confessed to any of his crimes. Investigators stated they would test DNA found on the victim's body to see if it belonged to Cable. 
the result of this testing, if it were ever conducted, are unknown. A spokesperson for the Kentucky State Police in 2015 stated, The time detectives received a possible lead in the case was in May, when the department received information about a potential suspect in their killings. The lead was investigated through DNA evidence, but investigators determined there was no connection to the body found on Pleasant Valley Road, end quote. It is not clear if he was referring to Cable. In 2007, it was announced that the victim had been identified as Scott Michael Morris, who went missing from the Indianapolis area as a teenager in 1978. However, further DNA testing in 2010 stated that identification was mistaken and the body does not belong to Morris. In April 2022, it was announced that the Trans-Doe Task Force was working on his case in association with the Kentucky State Medical Examiner's Office. The Disappearance of Keith Reinhardt In 1989, 49-year-old Keith Reinhardt was a sports writer for the Daily Herald in Chicago, but he decided to take a leave of absence for a unique outing. He moved to Silver Plume, Colorado, a small mining village near the Rocky Mountains. Reinhardt became fascinated by the story of Tom Young, a Silver Plume resident who disappeared under mysterious circumstances the year before. On September 7, 1987, Young closed up his bookstore and walked into the mountains with his dog, but never returned. Reinhard decided to open an antique shop in the former location of Young's bookstore and started working on a novel based on Young's disappearance. In an eerie coincidence, Keith Reinhard soon became the center of his own unsolved mystery. On July 31st, the remains of Tom Young and his dog were found in the mountains. They were both shot in the head and, since a revolver was found at the scene, investigators ruled that Young likely shot his dog before committing suicide. One week later, Reinhardt closed up his shop and told people he was planning to climb the summit of Pendleton Mountain. After leaving the village, he was never seen again. The circumstances of Reinhardt's disappearance were strange since it was a six-hour hike to Pendleton Mountain, and he did not leave until 4.30 p.m. At the time, Reinhardt was not carrying any equipment and was not dressed appropriately for a mountain climb. A search of the area turned up no trace of him and, tragically, one of the searchers was killed after crashing his plane. There was some speculation that Reinhardt staged his own disappearance. Others believe that both Reinhardt and Young were victims of foul play and that their cases were somehow connected. Whatever the truth, Keith Reinhardt's disappearance remains a mystery. Scott Lilly, Appalachian Trail, 2011 Scott Lilly set out to hike the Appalachian Trail from Maryland to Georgia as a way to find himself, but his journey ended in northwest Amherst County, Virginia. Lilly's last contact with the world had been at the end of July 2011 when he was climbing the Priest, 
a landmark mountain in Nelson County. In August, a group of weekend hikers discovered Lily's body in a shallow grave just off the trail near Cow Camp Gap in the Mount Pleasant National Scenic Area of George Washington National Forest. His gear, including his shoes and backpack, was nowhere to be found. A medical examiner ruled that Lily, who was from South Bend, Indiana, and used the trail name Stonewall, had died of asphyxia by suffocation and ruled it a homicide. Family and his friends said that Lily, 30 at the time, was a Civil War enthusiast, thus his trail name's reference to Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and that he had set out on the trail as a journey of self-discovery. In the days following the discovery of his body, the FBI, investigating his death because it occurred on public lands, sought to contact a number of other hikers thought to have contact with the Lily, including Mr. Coffee, White Wolf, Papa Smurf, Combat Gizmo, and Space Cadet. True crime and Appalachian Trail online forums buzzed with rumors and speculations about Lily and the hikers identified by the FBI. But... Five years later, no arrests have been made. Anyone with information about Lily's death should contact the FBI's Richmond office at 804-261-1044 or go to tips.fbi.gov. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In July 2019, the USS Omaha and other Navy ships were swarmed by a huge group of 14 to 100 plus unknown drones off the coast of California per eyewitness reports and video and radar data. It remains strikingly unclear what was responsible. The USS Omaha incident is one of many favorites amongst the modern UAP incidents, given the rare combination of many eyewitness accounts, video data, radar data, and other sensor data. That and the huge number of aircraft which were observed over the course of several hours and eventually weeks. 
Remarkably, there's still not a good answer as to what was responsible. Her Mystery Wire New evidence has surfaced regarding a swarm of unknown objects that surrounded multiple Navy warships off the coast of San Diego in July 2019. For two long hours on the night of July 15, 2019, the crew of the Omaha detected on multiple sensor systems unknown objects that surrounded the ship. One of the objects, a self-illuminated sphere at least six feet in diameter, flew alongside the Omaha for an extended period and was observed through a thermal sensor in the ship's Combat Information Center, or CIC. Over a period of hours, crew members on the USS Omaha, which is located in the center of the radar screen seen in multiple videos, monitored the approach of the unknown objects. There were as many as 14 objects on the screen at one point, all around the ship. On the Omaha, two different radar systems watched the objects and estimated their speed. The measured speed of these drones and their maneuvers are quite surprising. Recently released footage shows sailors on the Omaha observing as many as nine objects swarming the ship at speeds close to 160 miles per hour or 257 kilometers per hour. The Omaha incident was part of a series of strange encounters U.S. warships in the Pacific coast had with objects in the sky in 2019. By the end of the month, nine U.S. ships reportedly had confrontations with the craft. The objects were truly of unknown origins, Mr. Knapp said. If they are foreign drones, they displayed abilities to exceed our own technologies. Anything we know of, that is, and some of them appeared to be transmedium craft. They could fly in the air, they could enter the ocean, travel through water as easily as they traveled through the air, end quote. The radar and video, forward-looking infrared or FLIR, data can be found online. The most famous video shows one of the objects apparently disappearing into the water. A consistent number cannot be determined for how many drones were present, since a large number of ships were involved and the objects were frequently popping on and off on radar and other sensors. Some evidence suggests these units displayed unique flight properties and they were estimated to have been at least a hundred of them, conducting a coordinated series of maneuvers directed at our warships. The number quoted by Corbell is far higher than suggested in the Navy briefing slides, which says on July 15, 2019, the guided missile cruiser USS Bunker Hill encountered up to 11 UAS, and the destroyer USS Ralph Johnson tracked four on radar and reported sightings of 10 more. Corbell says multiple warships were experiencing swarms of unidentified craft at the same time, accounting for the higher numbers. A sighting by the Russell on July 30, 2019 detected five unknown UAS, according to the Navy description of the incident obtained by the drive under FOIA. The Navy's proposed explanation is that the drones originated from the Hong Kong-flagged freight ship MB Bass Strait or another nearby civilian ship, which were conducting surveillance on the USS Omaha and other Navy vessels. This theory has been met with skepticism. 
since the sighted ships were too far away and the drones were performing maneuvers that are beyond the realm of plausibility for drones. Among the more dramatic entries in the logs from this incident is one from the USS Rafael Peralta describing a white light hovering over the ship's flight deck. The log reflects that the drone managed to match the destroyer's speed, with the craft moving at 16 knots in order to maintain a hovering position over the ship's helicopter landing pad. To further complicate what was already a complex maneuver, the drone was operating in low visibility conditions, less than a nautical mile, and at night. By this point, the encounter had lasted over 90 minutes, significantly longer than what commercially available drones can typically sustain. According to AIS data, few civilian ships were in the immediate vicinity. AIS is not strictly mandatory in all cases and can be turned off, so it is possible other vessels could have been nearby as well. The civilian bulk carrier Bass Strait cited later in the investigation which situated towards the northern edge of the encounter area. A Liberian-flagged oil tanker, the Sigma Triumph, was just south of the position of the three destroyers. The ORV Alguida, a 50-foot catamaran, briefly a subject of interest in the official investigation that would come, was just off the western tip of San Clemente Island. The owners of the Alguida denied operating a drone during the time in question and claimed that their drones were incapable of operating more than a few feet from the ship. Further, the Phantom 4 drone is a small quadcopter and has a maximum flight time of 28 minutes. According to manufacturer DJI, which is inconsistent with the long durations of the incidents and general performance described as observed in the deck logs. The Alguida was also significantly west of the events for the second night, July 15th, based on AIS data. The role of the MB Bass Strait and its importance in the ensuing investigation was less clear at the time the drive wrote this article, but subsequent FOIA requests showed how and why the Navy zeroed in on the ship. Nonetheless, problems remain with this explanation. The Ticonderoga-class cruiser USS Bunker Hill, or BKH, noted as many as 11 drones operating nearby. A note on the slide states that the cruiser unsuccessfully attempted to contact the Bass Strait. It also indicates that the UAS incident continued after the Bass Strait departed the area. The exact duration of the incident is less clear, though the timeline indicates drones were spotted over a period of about four and a half hours. The timeline also indicates that Bunker Hill's AN-SPY-1 radar system held valid tracks of the drones, including up to an altitude of 21,000 feet. The complexity of this incident and its troves of associated data really do make drones seem like an awkward explanation, even if it's much less zany than the other theories that tend to orbit these stories. According to Corbell's sources and the Navy's own documents released under the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, these craft's capabilities included hovering at altitudes of up to 21,000 feet, flying for more than four hours, 
Traveling long distances in one flight and being apparently impervious to anti-drone Navy technology. The Navy documents show the freight ship, Bass Strait, was docked in Long Beach, California, about 100 miles away when some of the incidents occurred, making Corbell's contacts skeptical. It could have been the source of the swarm. Corbell paraphrased one witness on the destroyer, the USS Russell, who he claims told him they saw one of the craft accelerate instantaneously into the upper atmosphere, and that other sources with knowledge of the case said the objects were detected moving from the air into the sea. One of the biggest mysteries about the drones is how they were able to hold enough power to fly for so long, high, fast, and far. The contractor who asked, not to be named due to their job sensitivity, said modified quadcopters can fly as high as 30,000 feet, but only for short periods. The best quadcopter battery lasts an hour or so, the source said. Climbing four miles takes time, and once the vehicle reached that altitude, it would struggle to maintain a fixed or slow-moving position over the ship as the wind speed increased, end quote. Maintaining position under such conditions would increase the energy burn and greatly limit the time on target to just a few minutes, especially considering the quadcopter has to return to its point of origin. In addition, the reports mention the vehicle was illuminated, further increasing its power drain, the defense contractor added. The military tech expert said top quadcopters have a maximum range of about seven miles meaning their launch site would have to be near the warships. The vessel would have been easily detected as well as the launch of the quadcopter, they said. Considering these limitations, I don't think the illuminated vehicle that hovered four miles above the ship for a prolonged period could have been a traditional quadcopter. They just don't have the range or the staying power. It had to be much more advanced aircraft. What are your thoughts? Do you think this incident was caused by conventional quadcopters, more advanced aircraft, or something else entirely? Who was responsible? Individual actors harassing the Navy? A foreign state? The U.S. military itself? Or, again, something else entirely? Was anyone ever held responsible? I'm surprised that the Navy had such a hard time pinning down what was happening and putting an end to it. Later, FOIA requests revealed that this harassment went on for months in mid-2019. Who knows, maybe they're still happening today, little to our knowledge. Heidi Childs and David Metzler, Caldwell Fields, 2009 Heidi Childs and David Metzler had spent four years together, but as rising college sophomores just a couple of days into the 2009 fall semester, they still had their whole lives ahead of them. On the evening of August 26, they got into Metzler's 1992 Toyota Camry and drove out Craig Creek Road to talk and play guitar at Caldwell Fields, a recreation site in Jefferson National Forest. Ridges rise on each side to form a narrow valley around the site, which is home to three mowed fields, large shade trees, and a stocked trout stream. The next morning, a man walking his dog down the road found their bodies, Metzler in the car and Childs outside. 
They had been shot with a 30-30 rifle sometime between 8.25 p.m. and 10 p.m., according to authorities. At a news conference soon after the bodies were found, the Montgomery County Sheriff called the killings brutal and ugly. Since then, a coalition of local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies have investigated the case, offering a reward of $70,000 for information leading to an arrest. In 2012, officials released new information that Child's purse, which included her cell phone and credit card, had been taken from the scene, and that investigators had recovered DNA evidence, which was tested against nearby residents. Seven years after the homicides, however, no arrests have been made. However, that is not a cold case, said Lieutenant Kenny Light in August. This is still a very active investigation to the point that when you called, I was writing up something on this case, end quote. Montgomery County law enforcement officials request anyone with information about the crime to contact them. They're looking for information on people or vehicles that may have been in the area that evening. Contact the light at 540-382-6915, extension 44422, or lightdm at montgomerycountyva.gov. Angela Ayala died of strangulation in her own home, but her killer was never caught. Why is more not known of this case? 1991, Sheffield Lake, Ohio. Angela Vanessa Ayala was born in 1974 to Jose Ayala and his wife. She had a sister, though I have not been able to confirm if older or younger. They moved into a newly built home in 1978 in Sheffield Lake, Ohio. By all accounts, it appears to have been a nice home with modern amenities, including a code-based security system that was used regularly. Rumors have floated around that Jose was a strict father, prioritizing his daughter's modesty. This may have put him at odds with Angela, who had recently become engaged to an 18-year-old boy named Michael. On August 1, 1991, paramedics rushed Angela to the nearby hospital after she was discovered by her father, Jose. She was not breathing. Various reports list that she was otherwise beaten and bruised. After working to revive her, she was declared dead at 11.39 a.m. The police quickly ruled it a homicide, and the cause of death was strangulation. There were no signs of sexual assault and her time of death was estimated to be between midnight and 6 a.m. Not much seems to be publicly known about what happened that morning, but much speculation exists in plain sight on local community groups. One man reported that he worked with Jose that night. Their shift started at 4 a.m. That day, the father had left his wallet at home and left work at around 8 a.m. to retrieve it. It is around that time he found his daughter unresponsive. Allegedly, another neighbor witnessed Jose running frantically into the street and entered the home with him to discover the body. By her account, Angela was severely beaten and had been dead for some time. 
However, emergency services has not until recently admitted that she died at home and not at the hospital. Why was it the time of death was the night prior, but the paramedics still tried to revive her, damaging the scene in the process. Speculation is she was found on a waterbed with the heater turned up, so first responders thought she had passed recently. Angela's death garnered very little attention in the press and little aftermath. One small clipping explains how she lost her life and that it was indeed homicide. Two follow-up articles proceeded, one stating that Michael had taken a polygraph test and another that Jose had also. The police pledged that no charges would be filed against anybody until they had considered all the evidence of which some evidence had been submitted to a crime lab and they estimated two weeks until they would have those results. Nothing was ever made public thereafter and no charges have been filed in Angela's death. No one has ever officially been named a suspect. Local rumors of corruption in the police always swirled around the lead detective, Anthony Campo. These whispers followed until 2021 when he was fired after a racist incident at that police station. What happened to Angela? Why has this case gone so silent? Will she ever get justice? The Falcon Lake UFO Encounter there are thousands of recorded sightings from people claiming to have encountered a UFO, but it's very rare to find someone with actual physical evidence on their body to support their story. One of those people was Polish-born Stephen McCallick, who made his home in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. On May 20, 1967, the 51-year-old McCallick went out on a prospecting trip to Falcon Lake Provincial Park. He eventually spotted two glowing silver objects hovering above him. One of them flew away and disappeared, but the other one landed on a large rock formation. McCallick approached the strange craft, which was over 9 meters, or 30 feet, in diameter. The door opened, a bright light emerged from the object, and McCallick thought he heard muffled voices inside. After McCallick touched the craft, the door suddenly closed, and the craft took off again, knocking him over. This set McCallick's shirt on fire, forcing him to tear it off. After the experience, McCallick became nauseous and disoriented, and it took him nine hours to find his way home. The object had left several first-degree burns on his abdomen, which resembled a grid-like pattern of holes. When he showed the burns to doctors, they were completely baffled. The burns emitted a sulfuric stench, but even though McCallick was frequently nauseous, tests found no signs of any radiation poisoning. Weeks later, McCallick returned to the original site and found a 9-meter burned-out circle on the rock formation. Analysts also found traces of non-lethal radiation in the area. The unexplained burn marks remained on McCallick's torso for the rest of his life. No one knows for sure if he actually saw a UFO, but the physical evidence found on his body and at the scene indicates that he definitely encountered something strange that day.
someone killed my friend Ben. Ben was murdered in cold blood in Knoxville, Tennessee in October 2016. To this day, his senseless murder goes unsolved with no clues. Who killed our friend Ben? Loved ones remember the 28-year-old Knoxville native as a free-spirited artist who taught himself to play a variety of instruments and constantly doodled on any scrap of paper at hand. Goofy, quirky, kind-hearted, and memorable, Jernigan could quickly grab the attention of everyone in a room and hold it even after he was gone. Much like his personality, the circumstances of his killing don't fit the mold either. By all appearances, he wasn't mixed up in drugs. He didn't run with a bad crowd. There were no conflicts with family or friends. As far as the evidence suggests, it was mere happenstance. A brief bit of car trouble that stopped him within walking distance of home in the early hours of October 8, 2016, just long enough to cross paths with his killer. Robbery is believed to have been the motive, but even that fails to explain the why. Jernigan had little money, his family said, and likely would have given whatever he had under the threat of a gun. It's hard to get your head around, said his father, Guy Jernigan. You can drive yourself crazy trying to dwell on those last seconds, but that's not Ben. I don't want everything about Ben to be those last few seconds. It's about how he lived, end quote. Among those who knew Jernigan best, they still struggle to define him. Ben was a whole bunch of things wrapped into one, said his sister Amanda Forrester. He was not one for formal structure. He was super intelligent, but he could walk out of the house and forget to close the front door, end quote. Thumbing through family photos, his mother, Barbara Carter, noted how awkward Jennigan appears while holding his young niece, Lila. Yet, he proved to be a natural babysitter when he reached for his guitar, keeping the rambunctious toddler mesmerized with renditions of The Girl from Ipanema and Dream a Little Dream. Jernigan had no clear plan after high school, fascinated by all things artistic and in no hurry to choose a path into adulthood. He recognized that about himself, though. So he enlisted in the Navy at age 18 in an attempt to gain more responsibility. Jernigan served nearly three years as a mass communications specialist, learning photography and videography. After completing his military service, Jernigan enrolled at the University of Tennessee on the GI Bill to study medical laboratory science, where, to the surprise of his family, he proved to be a very disciplined and successful student. By October 2016, he had wrapped up his summer studies and decided to take a break for the fall semester before finishing his undergraduate degree. On the day of his death, with the stress of school at bay, Jernigan went out to celebrate a friend's birthday. For Ben, it's what I consider a perfect day for him, Guy Jernigan said. They started the night at Sassy Ann's and ended up at one of his favorite night spots, Urban Bar in the Old City. Jernigan loved karaoke, end quote. Credit card receipts indicate he left at around 2.30 a.m., catching a ride from a friend back to his car, according to his father. By 3.30 a.m., a traffic camera spotted him turning off Broadway onto Fairfax Avenue. 
His mother's house, where he lived, was a few blocks from there. Jernigan had taken his car in for an oil change earlier that day. Coincidentally, the mechanics had failed to reset the car's rear impact safety device, and as he drove over a bumpy railroad crossing near Forsyth Street, his old Lincoln Town car bottomed out and the safety device shut down the fuel pump. The car suddenly died in the roadway. A nearby resident called E911 at 5.45 a.m. to report a car stalled along Fairfax. The responding officer found Jernigan slumped over the center console of the car, with the owner's manual pulled from the glove box and the interior light still on. He had been shot once in the chest at point-blank range. His driver's license, student ID, and the other contents of his wallet were strewn about the car. The proximity of the crime scene suggests Jernigan could have been targeted by a transient person, authorities said. No other serious crimes were reported in the neighborhood in the weeks before, nor in the weeks after. Nor had anyone reported a disturbance or a suspicious person that night, let alone gunfire. All indications are that it was a crime of opportunity, said Lieutenant Doug Stiles, the head of Knoxville Police Department's major crimes unit. No weapon was found at the scene. Lab test results by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation of DNA evidence collected from items inside the car were deemed inconclusive. KPD investigators are weighing rather to seek additional testing from an independent lab, Stiles said. The lieutenant said investigators had interviewed several persons of interest, including one who currently is jailed in another county on unrelated charges. We need a witness, Stiles said. We need another piece to put this together, end quote. Ben is beloved by friends and family, and no one can rest until his murder has been solved. Is Ryan Woodmore guilty of the bathroom drowning of his wife? The evidence seemed weak, but is it possible for a presumably healthy 24-year-old to just drown in a bathtub without obvious explanation? On August 11, 2008, while her husband Ryan, of only four months, was watching a Bengals preseason game, Sarah Weedmer went upstairs to take a bath. An hour or so later, he was on the phone with the 911 operator, claiming he found his wife submerged in the bath and not breathing. That night, Sarah was declared DOA, and three days later, Ryan was charged with her murder. After three trials, Ryan was found guilty of murder and is still incarcerated to this day. Ryan has his supporters who point out the lack of real evidence that his wife was actually murdered at all but others point out that there really isn't any other reasonable explanation for her death, and there was some evidence against him. Not the smoking gun sort of evidence, but enough, along with the unlikelihood of there being any other explanation to find him guilty. This all took place in Warren County, Ohio, an exurb of Cincinnati that has a reputation for being conservative. Ryan, however, was white, college-educated, middle-class, and local. He was not the sort of defendant a jury might have it in for, yet he was convicted. 
There was no obvious evidence that Ryan had held her head under the water or was otherwise responsible for her death, but there were a few inconsistencies in his account and some evidence of bruising around her neck. There were no obvious defensive injuries, particularly evidence of nail scratches on the alleged perpetrator's arms, that are the most common evidence of deliberate drowning. There was also the fact that Sarah's head was at the end of the bathtub with the faucet. This would not be a normal way someone would take a bath. Other evidence that was used against Ryan including his flat demeanor on the 911 call. At his third trial, when he was ultimately convicted, a woman who had contacted him through a website dedicated to his defense made the claim that he had confessed the murder to her. This woman had a history of drug abuse and convictions of minor property crimes, and she never claimed to have actually met Ryan in person. Her account of his description of the murder did not agree with the facts of the case, and it is unclear how much credibility she had with the jury. One thing that was revealed to the jury as a result of her testimony was that Ryan was actively engaged in meeting women while out on bail. He apparently got one woman he was dating pregnant. This was all two or more years after his wife's death, and it is, again, unclear how much this mattered to the jury. The primary evidence against Ryan was the fact that no reasonable explanation of Sarah's death could be found. Sarah had a reputation for falling asleep easily, during movies or on her lunch break at work, but she had never sought medical attention for that, and sleep experts ruled out drowning after falling asleep in a bath. The possibility of a seizure or a heart problem could not be outrightly excluded, but since she had no medical history of either condition, the prosecution's expert dismissed the possibility, and the defense's expert could not convince the jury that either was significantly possible. Ultimately, Ryan was convicted with little overt evidence of guilt, yet what appeared to be such a remote possibility that any other explanation for her death existed. How likely is it really that a seemingly healthy 24-year-old with no medical history could drown in a bathtub as a result of a seizure, a heart issue, or any other medical cause? The Klein Falls State Park Axeman in 1977, Terry Jens and Aver Goldman, a pair of undergraduates from Yale, decided to spend the summer going on a cross-country bicycling trip. On July 22nd, they stopped at Klein Falls State Park in a remote area of Oregon to camp for the night. However, both women were suddenly awakened by a pickup truck which came barreling into the campsite and crashed into their tent. The two women initially assumed this was an accident but they were shocked to see a man in a cowboy hat emerge from the truck with an axe. He used his weapon to attack Jens and Goldman before climbing back into his truck and driving away. Both women were seriously wounded, but still alive. Jens managed to stumble to a nearby road and flag down a passing car for help. After a teenage couple stopped and went to the campsite, they saw the lights of another vehicle approaching them. It came to a brief stop before turning around and driving away. They suspected the pickup driver had returned to finish the job, but he fled the scene after seeing other people there. 
Jensen Goldman were both taken to a hospital and wound up surviving the horrific attack. The investigation eventually uncovered a suspect named Dick Dam, who was a known violent offender in the community. In 1995, while being detained for another crime, Dam was questioned about the Klein Falls State Park attack and given two polygraph tests. He showed signs of deception, but the results were inconclusive, since he had illegal drugs in his system and there was no evidence to leak him to the crime. Even if the Axeman is identified someday, he cannot be prosecuted since Oregon's statute of limitations for unsuccessful murder attempts has since run out. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park Disappearances The Great Smoky Mountains National Park borders Tennessee and North Carolina and is the most visited national park in the U.S. Therefore, it's probably inevitable that the park has its fair share of unsolved disappearances. On June 14, 1969, six-year-old Dennis Martin went on an outing to the park with his family. Dennis and three other boys split off in separate directions to play a prank, but Dennis did not return, and a massive search of the area turned up nothing. A nearby witness recalled hearing a frightening scream sometime that afternoon before he saw a rough-looking man running through the woods. Years later, a man found what appeared to be a skeletal remains of a child in the park, but did not inform the authorities because he was hunting illegally at the time. When he finally reported it during the 1980s, the remains could no longer be found. No one knows if either of these events had any connection to Dennis Martin's disappearance. Another unsolved Smoky Mountains disappearance involves 16-year-old Trini Gibson, who vanished during a school trip to the park on October 18, 1976. While the students were hiking, Trini somehow became separated from them and disappeared, never to be seen again. On September 25, 1981, 58-year-old Thelma Melton was hiking through the park on Deep Creek Trail with two friends when she got way ahead of them and disappeared after walking over a hill. No one could find her afterwards. More recently, 24-year-old Derek Joseph Luking went missing on March 17, 2012. His vehicle was found in the newfound Gap parking lot. All of his gear had been left behind, but there was a note on the windshield which read, Don't try to follow me. No trace of Luking could be found anywhere in the park, adding his name to the list of people who have mysteriously disappeared in the Great Smoky Mountains. Similarities between two suspicious deaths of two young English people in the Alps, that of Miles Robinson in December 2009 in Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland, and that of Patrick Finley in March 2022 in Flain, France. Number 1. Death of Winnegan Miles Robinson disappeared Tuesday, the 22nd of December 2009, Winnegan, Switzerland. Body found December 28, 2009, Lauterbrunnen, Switzerland. On his second night in Wingen, Miles Robinson went out with his sister Kara and others to meet old friends, to sink a drink or two at the Crystal Cafe, opposite Central Sports, and then to the Blue Monkey, under the cinema, the old Kegelbahn, to play pool and to drink a little more. 
His sister left him there at about 1.30 a.m., and at 2.19, he left the Blue Monkey with an old family friend, Amy O'Brien, whom he dropped off at Le Residence, which was more or less on his way home. There is no confirmed sighting of him thereafter. The next morning, he was not in the apartment in the Eiger, and his family had received no text message from him, and there was no answer from his mobile phone. Swiss police started to search. A helicopter flew around the area with heat sensors switched on, and a sniffer dog was employed to follow scents. Nothing was found. After a few days, the Swiss wound down the search, but naturally enough, family and friends continued to search. Under Swiss law, an official house-to-house -house search is not permitted unless there is evidence of a crime, of which there were none at this time. Finally, one of these search parties found Miles a few hours short of seven days from his disappearance under a 330-feet high cliff below Wingen and above Lauterbrunnen. It was immediately beneath a viewpoint called Monstrbrick, or Monk's View which is reached by walking past Lave Residence and moving to the right in the general direction of Interlaken, but high up above the Lauterbrunnen Valley. It is about 20 minutes walk under good conditions from central Wingen, or approximately one mile. Miles' body was taken to the mortuary in Bern. He was examined there by the pathologist, and his injuries were reported as being entirely consistent with those of a fall through trees then down a rock chute before hitting the ground at the base of the cliff. There was no sign or hint of a struggle, nor of wounds created by any other party. A standard test for alcohol in the bloodstream undertaken at the mortuary indicated 2.0 milligrams per liter. This was reported in the press as the equivalent of seven small beers. Anyone looking at the CCTV on the web of Miles leaving the Blue Monkey can see a lively coordinated young man bounding up the steps, not someone strongly intoxicated. The media certainly published some contentious articles. The Sunday Times, for instance, devoted about two-thirds of a page on the 3rd of January 2010 in an article headline, Police Ignored Trail of Skier in Deathfall. It seems the police sniffer dog had traced a scent to the top of Montblick on day one but conditions due to thaw, ice, and rockfall were reported as such that it was too dangerous to conduct a search of the bottom. Later, the press asked why it was a private search party that found Miles and not an official search party. In that private search party were one or two who had wondered if the triangulated location of the signal from Miles' mobile phone whilst battery power remained, already identified as South Wingen, might include a small sector in the Lauterbrunnen Valley. It was whilst searching that area that the body was found. Both family and friends of Miles referred to his well-known aversion to walking. So, why he walked one mile in the wrong direction at night with no better illumination than moonlight would be a reasonable question for which to seek an answer. Speculation amongst locals and visitors to Wingen revolve around unconfirmed reports that Miles was not found directly beneath the spot to which his scent was traced and that he would have had to climb several fences to get directly above where he landed. As is often the case in the matter of unexplained death, both speculation and conspiracy theories abound, amongst which the possibility of foul play cannot reasonably be ruled out, nor can an entirely accidental verdict. 
Two years after his death, other information appeared. According to a toxology report, he had consumed more than two and a half times the legal limit of alcohol on the night of his death. A faint trace of designer drug paramethoxamphetamine was also found in his system. The drug, commonly known as PMA or Dr. Death, is described as a mind-altering substance. Dr. Carey said the report from the Swift authorities showed only an indication of a presence of the drug. He added, this is unsatisfactory because it doesn't say it is definitely present. Coroner Dr. Paul Knapman added, just because someone had a drug doesn't mean they voluntarily took it. He said there was a possibility Mr. Robinson, who studied business and economics, had his drink spiked. Number 2. Death in Flane Patrick Finlay disappeared Tuesday, March 30, 2022, Flane, Haute-Sauvy, France. Body found March 31, 2022, Flane. The 27-year-old Briton, a musician by profession, spent the evening at the social bar in Flane, Haute-Sauvy, station in which he was staying with his friend Jake. He was last seen leaving the bar shortly before 1 a.m., Patrick had to find Jake to take the urban elevator and reach the lower part of the station, but the young man never got there. I'm a minute behind you, I'm just around the corner, he said in his last phone call to Jake. He gave no sign of life after that, despite the 20 or so phone calls made by his friend between 1.20 a.m. and 7.25 a.m. His body was discovered the next day at the bottom of a 35-meter cliff. His parents still do not understand why Patrick would have gone to the top of this cliff in the heart of a small forest, opposite to where he was to join his friend. Nobody would go there in the middle of the night, not even for 500 euros, swears his father, who even doubts that Patrick went there by his own means. No trace of earth was found under his shoes when he should have crossed a muddy path. What if Patrick had had a bad encounter at the bar? The question remains open for his parents, who have consulted the CCTV images of the establishment. We see the young Briton chatting with a group of five men who left the social bar just minutes after him. Again, only two of them were interviewed as part of the investigation. Do you think these two deaths have any similarities? And that, dear listeners, brings a close to True Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 11. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 